Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Manchester City close in on the Premier League title thanks to a brilliant performance from Kevin De Bruyne. But will his new teammate Erling Haaland make City unstoppable? We'll talk about Leeds United and whether they could cope going down to the Championship. Celtic have won the Scottish Premiership. Could Ange Postacoglu create a dynasty? We'll also be talking about the FA Cup. Of course, we will. A big game coming up between Liverpool and Chelsea at Wembley. This is the game. Hello there, welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Jonathan Northcroft and Tom Clark. Loads for us to discuss today, but we have to talk about a stunning performance at Molyneux from Kevin De Bruyne first off. Manchester City beating Wolves 5-1. De Bruyne scored four goals brilliant one on his left foot into the bottom corner. Listen, Manchester City have been superb recently. De Bruyne, since that defeat in the in the Champions League, has been excellent as well. But since they drew with Liverpool, Pep Guardiola's side have scored three, five, four, five and five again in their five Premier League games. Yes, 22 goals without a striker, no less, which teaches me. I'm going to have to eat my words on that. They are proving me wrong. Kevin De Bruyne just delivered a real treat for us. Yeah, and it's the psychological aspect as well. The leadership that he provides um, is is extraordinary and it has done since that disappointment in, in Madrid. His last couple of games have been sensational. He, he just always looks like a player that... that could pretty much do anything he likes, um, depending on what role he's given. And he's taken up upon himself to to be the finisher and the scorer in the last in the last couple of games, the difference maker. He could have scored five if that if that um, shot hadn't sort of come off the inside of the post at the end. It was the way he was following the balls in, the anticipation, the appetite. You know, after all he's achieved, still the most appetite on the on the pitch to. To get on the ball and 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 make that finishing touch, the way he strikes the ball is is so beautiful. Um, Paul Hayward, sort of former colleagues, I noted last night on on Twitter that the lovely thing about watching De Bruyne goals is they're just passes, but they're passes that he hits a little bit harder than his normal passes. He just slots balls into the net, and then the way he talked afterwards was 
a guy that's still humble, isn't finished yet, still wants to, um, you know, look look the next game and the next trophy. And, and I just think he's, he's extraordinary. And it was, it was actually quite timely on the day that the Haaland signing was, was confirmed for KDB to just remind us that it, Haaland may arrive as the equal top earner, but he's not going to be the top player, not not for some time yet. He's, he'll have to go something to be better than that guy. I thought it was brilliant, Tom. Once again, Kevin De Bruyne going to lead Manchester City to a Premier League title? No, not yet. I've told you, I've, I'm doubling down, <laughs> doubling down and doubling down until they finally, finally win it. I still see that West Ham game as being very tricky. But even watching that game, when Wolves equalised, you thought, hmm, let's see what they've got here. Because... Yeah. That was a very kind of ragtag goal to concede, wasn't it? It was very un-City-like. They were sort of getting opened up on the counter-attack a lot by Wolves during that period of the game. And I messaged my mates here saying, Fernandinho's exactly. not up to this. Exactly. They're going to have issues in this game. Well, you started to think, and remember discussing it um, previously and talking about Fernandinho and him coming on into that central defensive area as a substitute it is okay against Newcastle because, you know, the game's already set up. But teams playing against City now, between now and the end of the season can plan for that and I'm sure that Wolves did they thought let's let's maybe try and attack down the channels and that's obviously where the goal came from and so I was thinking is this the slip maybe this is the slip and just the sheer force of Kevin De Bruyne pulls them back through it was it was one of the more remarkable performances individual performances I think I've seen this season obviously watch far too much football but it was one of those games Johnny I don't know whether you agree where as as much as the skill and as much as the goals it was the kind of like otherly being almost it, it felt like something else that was happening that Wolves just simply couldn't stop he had that sort of Steven Gerrard or, or David Beckham crusading quality about yeah. him Beckham only once or twice Gerrard pretty much throughout his career and yeah I mean I've always seen a lot of um, Gerrard and De Bruyne he's got other skills but that essential amalgam of of technique drive and and physicality um is is pretty on pretty unstoppable in in when he's in in that in that mood and he leads the team like 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 Gerard did to Liverpool and yeah you you're right Tom it was just some sometimes there's a force of nature against you and and he was that force of nature that wolves couldn't answer last night do you know what the funniest thing is about Kevin De Bruyne this season? I think he would probably say by his standards, he hasn't played really as well as he, he could have. And I, I tend to agree with that. He he spoke previously about the ankle injury that he had, and he said he probably wouldn't have, have done what he did in terms of getting injections and forcing himself to play in, in games at the Euros when he wasn't 100%. Had he known how his ankle was going to feel this season, that's how much discomfort he's been feeling. He, he spent some time out with that ankle problem. Uh, he had hasn't, I don't think, been at 100% fitness. He's one of those players, I think, who is affected by fatigue in many ways because of the, the high level that he's been playing at for so long and uh, all the big games that he's been playing in as well. He's scored 20 goals now, which is more than he's ever scored. So this is this is me genuinely saying Kevin De Bruyne will be better next season than he's been this season. I think with a summer rest, his physicality will be there. He also had COVID this year and struggled coming back from that. Kevin De Bruyne... I mean, it's an early tip here, and it's not not really sticking my neck out. But player of the season next year, I'm just I'm just calling it nice and early. My <laughs> prediction for for PFA Player of the Year next season is Kevin De Bruyne. I, he's sensational, and he's going to have 
a sensational teammate joining him at Manchester City. We'll talk about Erling Haaland in a moment. I asked Tom, though, about this title. He says no. Um, two games for Manchester City to get through. If you like one, depending on how, how many goals they continue to score, because goal difference might be you know just out of Liverpool's reach on the final day. West Ham away this weekend. Aston Villa at home. I think West Ham away is it incredibly tricky for Manchester City. If you watch that game against Wolves and you watch the way that the ease with which Raul Jimenez picked up the ball, but also just turned and ran at the central defenders so many times, and you think about Mikel Antonio and what he can do, he's probably going to be better than Jimenez at the aspect of running at the defence, maybe not holding the ball up, but certainly running at the defence with the ball at his feet, being a previous fullback and winger. I think if Fernandinho starts that game... I mean, he might have to because of the injury to Imrit Laporte. But if Laporte is fit for this game at the weekend and they are thinking about choosing the central defensive partner, they cannot leave Nathan Ake on the bench. I couldn't believe he was on the bench last night anyway. You know, I'm asking City fans on social media, why, why is Ake on the bench and Fernandinho starting at centre-half and Pep's making out it's an injury crisis when he's got a centre-back on the bench? And apparently... The City fans tell me, well, Laporte and Ake are both left-footed, so they can't start together. Pep doesn't like it. This will go in the overthinking category, my friends. If Fernandinho starts and it costs, it costs them a result at the weekend because he's right-footed, so he has to start, and it costs them a the result, I will be on Monday screaming one word, overthought, overthought, overthought. Johnny, do you agree with me? <laughs> I love I love how we're still looking at reasons to say Pep's a, a fool, even though <laughs> the genius has demonstrated yet again. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I do agree actually that he'd be he'd be risky to to play Fernandinho in that game. I can't get out of my mind the, the image of Fernandinho being counter-attack to death against Leon in the in the Champions League a couple of years ago because he just doesn't have the, the legs anymore and all that guile doesn't protect you ultimately from somebody who's just a lot lot quicker than you that gets space to run into Bowen and Antonio could damage him I agree Ake probably has to play Egan Riley looked pretty good when he came on mm. briefly against Newcastle actually I mean he might be worth a shot in that in that game but I just think the goal difference is now such that even if West Ham were to win and then, you know, West Ham, the nature of, of that kind of game wouldn't be anything more than a one-goal West Ham win, I would, I would say. It's, it would still be a leap for Liverpool now to, 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 to win the title. City can now, because of that goal difference swing, they can probably afford to, to lose a game and, and still come good. Couldn't see them slipping up on the final day. So I, I think it's... I think it's pretty much done now. I wanted to talk about Manchester City more broadly. We've seen the arguments elsewhere. And I, I found it quite peculiar. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before. But the way that Manchester City has spoken about, maybe we're all just complacent about what they do out there on the pitch. Maybe it's an element of, of people not really respecting what Manchester City have done because we know about the wealth of their ownership group, the Abu Dhabi group, of course. Maybe it's the fact that, that you know, Pep Guardiola's the manager and it's almost like, well, you know, he's going to deliver trophies. That's just what Pep Guardiola does. But they never seem to get, the, you know, this reaction that we've had recently with Liverpool being, you know, the greatest team in Europe and the great, every time they have a great result. I mean, I don't feel like it's greeted in the same way with Manchester City. And in fact, the only way that I can describe it is not necessarily when they're playing well. When Manchester City lose, 
it's not really the same reaction to when the big other clubs lose. I don't know if that's fan base. I don't know what it is, but I, I'm, I'm starting to think that maybe Manchester City, in terms of their football at least, are being undervalued by the, the, the greater British public. Am I reading the room right, Tom Clark? Yeah, I think you are. I think we briefly touched on it with Tom Roddy, didn't we, the other day, talking about the slight perception of this title race. And I wonder whether it's also slightly because Liverpool, by being the chasers, are in effect the underdog and we all love an underdog, don't we? So I, I wonder whether there's part of that at play. I do think as well, we also get a bit bored, don't we, of people's continued success and Manchester City other than that Liverpool title, have been the dominant force. But I think you're right to also say that, yes, they spend a lot of money, but in terms of the squad and what he's done, if they win a title, this will be the second title they've won, essentially playing without a striker, um, whilst having forwards in the in the squad, of course. Gabriel Jesus has been great at times this season, but hasn't necessarily played always as a striker. So... I've said before, I think they're undervalued. I have a slight bias having grown up in Manchester and got a lot of friends who are City fans. So maybe I'm slightly biased. Maybe Johnny should be the one to ask answer on this one. I agree. I mean, they do get praise, clearly, but I think there's still a slightly grudging element to it. And and you're right, Tom, to say that there's there's a magnification of flaws when they when they lose. And I think it comes down to monotony. I think it comes down to the monotony of their brilliance, that, that a club <laughs> that makes fantastic decisions you know they went and got the best manager out there um he then implements a style of football that's all about controlling matches and and in in a, in a you know really systematic and consistent way being in control of of games and then they they barely get their recruitment wrong they go out and use that financial muscle not to do daft sort of, you know, Venkies-like things. I mean, Jack Grealish might be the first indulgent signing of the entire sort of 10 years of spending this money. It's, it, 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 uh, oh, sorry, not 10 years, but since um, Soriano and Bagheristan came, which is probably seven or eight years. But yeah, th- th- those kind of monotonously good 50 or 60 million pound signings that we've seen, the Laportes, the Diaz's, Bernardo Silva, um, you know, Mares, Sterling, that just make them better and better and better. So they get so little wrong that that um, maybe we don't appreciate how much they get right, if that makes sense, and also jump on it when there is a, a flaw. And um, there is in the background, I have to mention that City fans will grow, and there is in the background where the money comes from, and, and that is, is a reason that some people with, withhold the praise. Um, but without going into that, I think it's, it's that syndrome that the kind of perfect champion almost gets where it, it's, you know, it, it's a British thing. We find it boring watching success. Americans love it. Um, and we almost have more fun looking at people with flaws. <laughs> they like stories, underdog stories, as you say, people who who kind of do the Rocky thing or whatever. Um, whereas City, you're kind of looking at, at the perfect champion a lot of the time. Um, and, you know, hope, hopefully we will look back and kind of remember my my goodness me, that was really, really, really good football. I'm very much looking forward to the book Pep Guardiola, Brilliant Monotony, ghostwritten by Johnny <laughs> North. My years in Manchester, ghostwritten by Johnny Northcroft. I can, I can yeah. see it now. Be a great name for an album, actually, or you know, or a band. Make it happen, Johnny. Make it happen. 
Absolutely not. Uh, listen, Manchester City, it's not monotonous for their fans. They love it. They are going to get even better next year. They have an agreement in place to sign one of the hottest young properties in football. £51.2 million for Erling Haaland off Borussia Dortmund right now. We imagined that that salary will be a formality. It's rumoured to be the same as De Bruyne. I think you said it earlier, Johnny, around £400,000 a week. Yes, the identity of this week's Euro Millions winner has been revealed. Erling Haaland, a goal every 64 minutes in the Champions League, virtually a goal a game in his club career so far. Does his signing then, given their brilliance, make Manchester City pretty much unstoppable from this point out? I mean, for me, they've won four in five if they get over the line this season. And I think if you're looking at the next five years of Erling Haaland's contract, I imagine Man City will probably win four of those as well. What do you think, Tom? On paper, yes, it's obviously brilliant. And if we're in the kind of FIFA uh, computer game style, then this is just you know obscene. <laughs> they're they're going to go beyond. But I'm going to be the guy, and there's been lots of chat around this on social media, just like, let's not overanalyze this. They're signing one of the great strikers. I imagine he'll score loads of goals. They'll win loads of trophies. But from a kind of, you know, that slight tactical geekery that I like to sometimes bring to the podcast, it will be interesting to see because we've just talked about Manchester City and their brilliant, monotonous way of winning they're bringing in a guy who will disrupt that you know they've had these forward players Foden Mares, Sterling Jesus one of the reasons Pep loves Gabriel Jesus is because he does exactly what you tell him play on the right Gabriel no bother boss play on the left no bother play fr- play up front no bother I'll work I'll graft I'll tackle I'll tap in I'll do it all all the other guys are all the same Bernardo Silva you know these players that fit the Pep way and I'm not saying Haaland won't but it will change that whole dynamic and I think it's interesting Johnny referencing it earlier in terms of De Bruyne we know De Bruyne likes to feel like the the main man the star man and that's another factor as well that you're going to have this guy physically imposing character and we've seen from his celebrations taunting opposition fans in the Bundesliga you know really scrapping he's a big character as well Erling Haaland as well as a big guy and a big goal scorer so it is going to be fascinating for me and I'm not saying this is a nightmare signing it's going to disrupt everything it's a really bad move for City but it's just going to be interesting to what what the actual uh, product is on the pitch and how it's all going to gel together Johnny what do you think unstoppable City well I mean, Jamie Carragher put it really well the other day, which is, you know, people talk about this taking City to the next level, but there is no next level. They are already, certainly in domestic terms, as good as you can possibly get, points-wise, goals-wise, trophies-wise. I suppose the next level might be making that that difference in a in a, in a a European tie. Although, I have to say, I know that the, the narrative's become, if they could have finished better, they'd have beaten Real Madrid, but I don't think that explains the implosion in, in, in extra time. I don't think anything to do with the goal scorer. That's an aside. Tom's right. The, the, the thing about Haaland is brilliant, extraordinary. The, the player, apart from Mbappe or along with Mbappe, that everyone would want to sign. So, of course, it, it strengthens an already incredible team. But it's interesting because it's a disruptive thing in the sense that it's kind of a little bit uncity like it's a little bit on Guardiola, like it's it, it, it's a new social dimension to the squad. You know, as, aside from De Bruyne, the people like Raheem Sterling, who who maybe shoveled even further to the the margins through this, and 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 there's all of that stuff. Um, so it, it, it it's an interesting new plot line to this monotonous city story, I suppose. Um, I suspect it'll turn out really well for them, though, because. 
he's just so good. Uh, but he's also shown in his career an, an, an ability to develop and learn already. Incredibly well plotted out career from from an early age. Um, I don't think he'll be another Zlatan. And, you know, yes, Pep's had his run-ins with big number nines, but he's also done rather well with people like Robert Lewandowski, uh, who who will, you know, the, the type that will take his teaching. And I, I, I'm, I love it. I love it. The fact he's going to be in the Premier League. I love seeing what Guardiola plus this striker, what they're going to do for each other. And it will make City a little bit different. So it's... Um, yeah, I think I think it's great for, for for everyone really. But yeah, as a Manchester United fan, I'm I'm not sure yeah. I uh, I share that joy. But um, I think it's good for the Premier League to have as many great players as possible. I do think they need to be shared around a little. So this signing for me, I think there needs to be a franchise model. Uh, we need to start having, you know, the best players shared around the top 20 teams, okay? Equal equal quality of sides. That's what I want to see. Make it all about the tactics. And this, this yeah, listen, I'm only joking. This Haaland thing, um, I think it's incredible. But I have to say, listening to Pep Guardiola talk about his signing after the game last night, I thought, is he being a little bit sheepish here? Because it is, it's almost like I'm embarrassed that we're signing such a brilliant player. We've got another fantastic signing. But he actually said, when he was asked about it, it's great for the club. He went, yeah, it's a great signing for the club. And he didn't say, can't wait to work with him. He didn't say, he's going to add this, he's going to add that. He said, it's great for the future of the club. And I thought, ooh, have the club signed Haaland? Has Pep Guardiola actually said, this is the player I want? Or have the club just said, this makes sense for us? Longevity, the money involved. We're not, you know, we, we tried to get a hundred million pound striker last year. It didn't happen. We're not going to have a saga. There's a release clause here. We're just getting this player in and you're going to have to work with him. Um, Pep wanted Jared Bowen, you mean? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> wanted another forward who can play in lots of different areas, you know, yeah. a grafter. I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just, I'm going to find it interesting to see if they can work together because the personality, I don't think Pep Guardiola would want to add that. But he's got Jack Grealish, who added last summer, mm. who's got a similar personality. He's very, you know, out, I say outspoken. Um, he's himself, you know, he's unapologetically himself. And, and why should players change? I, I, I do think there is another level for them to go to, Manchester City. Um, yes, you can win the title. You can win the title with 75 points or 85 points or 95 points. You know, it's all about getting over the line and being at the top of the table. But they want to get over the Champions League line. That is what this club has been about since the ownership group came in. And this signing certainly takes them to that point. You look at what Karen Benzema did for Real Madrid. You, you, you need that one talisman who can pop up with the goal when you need it most, whether you've played well, whether you've played badly. And I honestly believe at times when you look at the other big clubs, you look at what Mbappe does in those moments. You look at what Mo Salah has done in those moments. They have bought a player to deliver them those big European moments and probably a couple of Champions Leagues in the next five years as well. You heard it here first, by the way. Let's carry on with the Premier League, though, and go to the other end of the table after these midweek games. A 3-0 defeat to Chelsea sees Leeds looking at relegation, really staring down the barrel. Now, it was another game uh, where one of their players was sent off for a reckless challenge after Luke Ayling at the weekend, this time Dan James. And Jesse Marsh's team now sit in the relegation zone on goal difference from Burnley. But Burnley have a game in hand, as do Everton, who are now two points above them after their draw with Watford. Do we think Leeds are coping 
worst with the pressure of this relegation battle. Tom? Yeah, again, and this is something that um, Tom Roddy talked about, talked about them being maybe too emotional or having the wrong emotions for a relegation scrap. On Monday, we talked about Frank Lampard having engendered a really positive, we're all in this together, players, experienced players at Everton pulling in the right direction, not necessarily playing great football, but getting the job done, i.e. we're going to survive. And at Leeds, it increasingly looks utterly haphazard. I mean, how do you go from that performance, that first 20 minutes at Arsenal, and then immediately, you know, we always hear about it in football, when you've had a bad game or done something wrong, you immediately want the chance to write it, you want the chance to correct it. They've got a home crowd. Yes, they've got a big, big team against them in Chelsea, but a Chelsea that aren't, you know, have got one eye on the cup final, haven't been playing great in the league. This is a real opportunity. What has Jesse Marsh done? What has that pre-match team talk been that meant they went out like that and Dan James goes flying into that challenge? How? How How do you get to that point? I, don't, I, can't, under, I can't for the life of me understand how you would be in that position I was watching it and thinking, this is absolutely unbelievable. And Marsh had talked about in his press conference beforehand, you know, alluded to Mother Teresa and all these kind of slightly, <laughs> slightly jokey comments about peace and love and we're not bad. But the, the simple fact is he he has made Leeds foul more. He's made, you know, he's made yeah. them a slightly more aggressive You can say team. dirty Leeds. No one's going to abuse you. No. Well, they, <laughs> well, they might. But, but I don't think it is necessarily that. He's made them more aggressive and maybe he's pumped them up a bit more. But it, it's the wrong energy. It's, you don't need that in the... You need a bit of composure and you need a togetherness and they just seem to have you know got this everyone's against us and it's and it's not helping at all they look in a real real trouble well, Everton did it for you know four or five games there they were flying into challenges they were showing their fans how committed they were they were trying to use another element because they're not going to outplay teams at the moment that's why you're at that end of the pitch you need to add your own x factor if you like so maybe get stuck into them. yeah I don't I don't mind that in a sense, but you've got to then place it in the wider context. And the wider context is that all eyes were on them, refereeing eyes particularly. And you've talked about perceptions before, Hugh, in recent weeks. After that game, when ailing, you're one of your most experienced players. And I was speaking to Rick Broadbent, our colleague, who's a Leeds fan. And I was saying to him, you know, what happened? He's like, I can't understand it because... And he said, I know this is a cliche, but Ailing is not that type of player, has never really been that type of player for us. And yet to watch him go flying into that tackle, mm-hmm. obviously something has been, you know, said about this is how we this is the energy we need, this is what we can do. When that happens, to then go into the next game and have it happen again, that's what I can't understand. What do you think about them, Johnny? Are they they is it Jesse Marsh's instructions, do you think? Is it just the pressure getting to Leeds? What is it? I think the pressure's definitely getting to them. I'd also, you'd have to say that Dan James is is just the most headless of chickens. So, um, <laughs> in, you know, it, before that ludicrous tackle, he'd, he'd given the ball away three times, attempted a pathetic dive to not win a, a foul, and it was kind of in keeping with his, his work up to that point. Um, but it is an odd one. There's been I don't think there's been any need for them actually to to lose this control emotionally. Um it is a bit odd to watch. Maybe it's a factor of of, of Marsh telling them to press harder and, and, and expend more energy. But you know, they've, they've just, the facts are they've just had a really difficult run of fixtures. They've just had City, um, Chelsea and Arsenal. And before then they'd been unbeaten in six games. They'd won three of them, four of them, I think. It was it was going okay. This they needed to take a really cool look at the fixture list and try and just plot it out and 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 ex- accept that they were going to suffer in these three games. Try and nick something, 
play as pragmatically and defensively as Lampard's been playing with Everton and then try and do it in the last two matches, which are reasonable fixtures for them. Um, it feels like they've been spooked a little bit by uh, Burnley and Everton winning and haven't focused on just their own job and now arrive at those last two games in a bit of a, a crisis because they don't have an ailing. Um, they have got this heightened sort of pitch of, of, of emotion about them and um, the damage was done with the goal difference and, and, and the sort of, you know, the first phase of the season. But I do feel they, they came into this run-in with a, with a, with a, a, if they'd managed it a little bit better emotionally with a, a reasonable chance. And, and they've, they've just, they've, they've, they've self-destructed a little bit. And, and Jesse Marsh is really going to have to earn his corn in the next few days trying to get them right for, for, for Brighton and Brentford. Win those two games and, and they will they will be okay, I'm sure. But on the evidence of how badly they handled last night's occasion, I'm not sure what we're going to get from them on Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, it's going to be an intriguing one. They're missing a couple of, I guess, important players. Let's call it that. Patrick Bamford watching from the stands. Calvin Phillips back in the side. It's been totally disjointed. Leeds fans complaining about their tactics against Chelsea. Not too impressed with the idea Rafinha should be a right wing back. But there you go. Um, We'll see if Jesse Marsh can sort things out at the weekend. I, I, I watched a lot of the game just thinking... Can this team cope with being in the championship next year? That's all. That's really what I was thinking. I was like, how bad could it get for Leeds once again? Would this team come straight back up? Because they've lost their identity. I think that's an important thing. You know, a lot of teams that do get relegated, particularly ones that have just come up from the championship, managers do get a chance to stay at the club in the Premier League. And a lot of those clubs don't expect to stay up. So the manager doesn't always get sacked in that in that year in the Premier League if you like they, they do have a bit of continuity Jesse Marsh has really just taken over I don't know what his Leeds United team will look like but the, the club has waited so long the fan base has waited so long to be back in the top tier they feel like they are a Premier League club they, well, I mean they should be historically I mean come on look at the size of Leeds United and the history that they've had but I looked at that team last night and I thought, I don't see currently a team that's coming up next season. One that could, one that should be top six, but not guaranteed to, to win it. You know, you looked at Fulham last year and, and Bournemouth and thought they'll be good championship sides. They're going to change their squads, but there's a brand of football. There's a style of football. It's all geared towards scoring goals. I don't know what leads do at the moment I mean even if they get results or not I don't know their identity well that was the problem with sacking Marcelo Bielsa when they did in that it was a team so moulded in his image and he'd the brilliant things he'd done in terms of the style of play but also getting a lot out of not just physically but um, in terms of talent out of players that as you say Hugh weren't as good and aren't as good as those players in the squads of like Bournemouth or Fulham and things like that and so that's where it is slightly unenviable task for Jesse Marsh because it's a team and a squad so geared towards one man that it's then very hard to 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 change it. I I, I don't I don't you know I don't uh, abide these kind of oh they're a big club they should be here they should be this. It's about the performances on the pitch and if they're not good enough then they should be in the championship. But I, I think you're right. I, I don't think it'll be a disaster for them to go down. But I don't think they're necessarily equipped to come straight back up because also you've then got to imagine that. Calvin Phillips, Patrick Bamford would be moving on um, and similarly some of the other players as well. So it would be fairly disastrous for Leeds 
as much as they were only recently down there, I would I would argue it'd be as disastrous for Leeds as it would be for Everton to go down. I think to come back up, um, they they have to be brave financially and try and keep as many of the players as they can. And they weren't brave financially at the start of the season. They didn't invest properly. You know, their only signing more or less was Dan James. Um, and they are going to lose Phillips, I'm sure. They'll lose Rafinha. Um, and they, they need to do what Fulham did and keep, you know, they kept Mitrovic on his big wages. To, Bournemouth did the same. To, to come back up, Leeds would have to, to be pretty brave and take that financial hit and, and try and keep that squad together. They do have good youngsters to come in. But, yeah, they... The big question mark. The only thing is, I have been wondering whether going down to the championship is the big disaster that it used to be because so many teams bounce straight back up. I think those, you know, that it's not quite the abyss that it once was. But you bounce back up by keeping your Premier League squad together as much as possible. Yeah, it's going to be a tough one for Leeds United if they do go down. They have to keep fighting in these last two games. And of course, we'll be reacting to their game against Brighton on Monday before we build into what will still be, I think it'll all still be in the balance going into that final weekend of the season. Um, in a moment, we're going to talk about the Scottish Premiership. Plenty still to come as we look ahead to the FA Cup final as well. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. So the big news in the Scottish Premiership is Celtic are crowned champions. For the 10th time in 11 seasons, they drew with Dundee United at Tannadice and their manager, Ange Postacoglu, said the season had taken every ounce of him. Now, there were eyebrows raised when an Australian coaching in Japan was appointed as Celtic's boss, but the impact he's had has been fantastic. So congratulations to him. Congratulations to all of you Celtic fans. Jonathan Northcroft, I'm going to talk you about um, what's been going on. You keep a closer eye than me on Scottish football, I am sure. After that Rangers title win under Steven Gerrard, I think they needed something Celtic. They definitely they needed some sort of impetus. They needed some sort of drive. They needed some sort of direction, which is one of the reasons that people were expecting maybe a bigger name to, to come in or maybe one that we were more familiar with at Celtic. Postacoglu has proved to everyone that doubted him wrong. I think this is one of the stories of the season. I, 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 I really, really admire what, what Ange Postacoglu has done in, in, in Glasgow. And yeah, I mean, you've got to remember that last summer... So it were at a real low. There was a there was a real feeling of anger among fans. Rangers had, had got the title back. They had come to the end of a cycle. They lost a lot of big players. You know, they lost the talisman, Scott Brown. They lost the best defender in, in Ayer. Um, they lost Ryan Christie, a good player. They lost Edward. There was a feeling Rangers were there to, to take over. They sort of flirted, more than flirted, with Eddie Howe and looked like they were going to try and get this kind of glamour appointment Eddie Howe sort of, in the end, decided it wasn't for him. Too much of a risk to his reputation. And Ange arrives from Japan with... Now, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got an Australian friend who's, who's worked with the Australian national team when Ange was there and has been telling me about this guy for years. So I knew he was a good coach. Um, in fact, more than a good coach, a guy that, you know, in Australia had tried to revolutionise the way they play and then they'd gone to Japan and, and, and brought, a sort of, I guess it's a kind of Guardiola-style football and conquered Japan. But coming to Scotland, knowing the, the, the kind of difficulties uh, and the goldfish bowl of, of 
Glasgow, did wonder how he was going to get on. And he's imposed a style of football from the start. Um, he stuck to his beliefs after, you know, difficult, lost his first three away games and made some very interesting signings, brought in, you know, some players from Japan. Kyogo has been fantastic. Hatate and Maeda look really good. Um, and it's just been a, it's been a, 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 the way he's captured that whole club. He's perfect for Celtic. They're a romantic fan base. He's a guy that speaks from the heart. There's a real authenticity about him. He's a footballing romantic. He'll die on his shield playing the way he plays. And that's kind of what the Celtic public want. And they've just had this great season um, where they've overturned Rangers. It's been the thrilling football they want. They've got a completely new team. They've re re it's not just him. They've rediscovered the, the kind of touch in the transfer market. Signings like Carter Vickers, really clever signing. Uh, Abada, Starfeld. Joe Hart was a very unusual but 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 clever signing and you know apart from Europe where again they went out in a very Ange way just playing really open football and and, and losing goals to good teams but apart from Europe you know they, they, they won the league cup as well it, it's been a tremendous season for them and I just like I just you know I'm, I'm no fan of the old firm but I do acknowledge that the better the old firm are the better it is for Scottish football. And it's brilliant to see Celtic playing this great stuff and Rangers in, in a European final. And I can almost forget what's happening at the bottom end of the table <laughs> for a split second when I look at that big picture. But yeah, I think Ange, you know, this guy's an outsider. He's one of one of life's outsiders. He, he 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 was he was kind of ostracized a little bit in Australia at first when he was trying to teach him this new style, went to Japan again took a gamble and, and changed things there and arrived at Celtic without an entourage without any assistant coaches usual kind of chauvinism and has succeeded against those odds using his beliefs and who can't like a story like that Johnny I'm sure it drives you and all your fellow Scots mad when you get questions like this and thinking like this from an Eng Englishman but <laughs> do you think in the way that Gerrard's done with Rangers and then to Villa Rogers with Celtic and then to Leicester do you see Postacoglu and some of those players that you talked about that he's unearthed and brought to our attention do you see them because that is ultimately as sad yeah. as it is to admit that is part of the challenge for Scottish football is then keeping hold of these talents when they become more yeah. mainstream names do, do you see him and some of those players having the potential to move on not necessarily coming to the bright yeah. lights of England but you know elsewhere potentially yeah it's, it's funny to, I, I was thinking about it last night actually thinking that and is actually tailor made for for the Premier League. He could he could go to I don't know. Let's say let's say a club like Leicester, um, who've done it before with Celtic. But you know, I think if you put him at a mid ranking Premier League club, who wants a real great football identity and will invest in that, and uh, somebody left field to to maybe have a little flutter with a gamble with it could just move them to the next level. I think he'd be a I think he'd be a man. I mean, he's he's slightly old, you know. If I could say that, he's in his late fifties. But I guess so. What? Um, and some, you know, something a player like Kyogo, tremendous little talent there. Starfelt looks like another of that line of Scandi players that could could do really well. Um, I, I think I think you know, Andrew's history is that he probably will move on to somewhere else in in Europe and 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 have a go there and. Um, 
I don't know if you have if you haven't heard him talk as well. His press conferences are gold. He's just <laughs> he's just authentic. He's 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 great, and um, I think he would be an asset um, to to the Premier League if he if he came. But Celtic fans will be um, screaming at, at the sound of that. So. Mm-hmm. My third bold prediction of the podcast then, from north of the border to the south coast, Ooh, to either replace Southampton, exactly, to either replace Hasenhutl, or if Graham Potter does get taken away with that brand of football that Brighton have, could he build off the back of that and the, and the creative quality players on the ball that they have? I, I think that, that one of those two clubs might be interested. I mean, that's a more bold prediction than your other ones, which I think were <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne is going to win Player of the Year and that Manchester City might get better under Erling Haaland. So, you know, fair play for actually coming up with something original here. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Um, just finally, because I know you mentioned Rangers there and we're, what, less than a week away from a huge Europa League final. Final, um, taking on Eintracht Frankfurt in Seville. Is there going to be a dynasty now from Postacoglu in Celtic, or do you truly believe that under Giovanni Van Bronckhorst we could have what we've needed, which is not really nine title wins in a row, but the old firm and who else might you know jump in there and win a few titles? Genuine competition every year for the title, and not it wasn't a one horse race, but not the same team dominating for long periods. What do you think it will be? Yeah. I, 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 it, it's set up now for a, a much better era between the two of them in terms of being, you know, going toe to toe. And I remember the Advocate versus a Neil old firm, which I reported on, which was a brilliant rivalry. Two really, two different teams, different managers, but really good sides who were also pretty handy in Europe. And they maybe are getting back there. You know, although I've been talking about Ange going, I don't think that'll happen anytime soon. Celtic's mm. got into his blood, so I think he won't, will want to do a few years there. Um, and Van Bronckhorst Rangers is already in his in his blood. So yeah, yeah. Celtic have got a new team, as I say, quite a young team. Rangers maybe would need a bit more investment longer term, but but what a job is being done there. And the old firm games have actually been more interesting and and um, I think better football contests. Um, this season than, than 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 before, so um, it could be. Yeah, I don't see anyone else getting in there, unfortunately. But between them two, yeah, we could we could be edging back towards Advocate O'Neill for a while. Uh, I'm I'm being serious here. It's a great. It could be a great era for Scottish football because you've got maybe now, given what's happened with the Russian teams two Scottish teams going straight into the Champions League for next season which will help with coefficient points if you if you need that but also a good chance of Scotland getting to a World Cup which would be absolutely fantastic and the other thing that we have to say about Scottish football right now is loads of talented young players coming through the system Aberdeen Dundee United you know there are clubs that are producing players now that some big clubs across Europe you know you'd like to see them stay in the Scottish Premiership for as long as they can but the fact is they're going to probably go to big clubs and get great training, which is going to improve the national team, which hopefully will feed into the future of the Scottish clubs as well. I think it's a great time to be a Scottish football fan. Fingers crossed for that playoff, by the way, uh, in the summer. Um, listen, loads more for us still to discuss on the game podcast, as always. That's what I always say. But it is going to be interesting from here on out because it's FA Cup final weekend. It's a big game. We'll discuss that next. 
spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. This weekend, it's the FA Cup final between Liverpool and Chelsea at Wembley. We're going to look ahead to that match in a few moments' time. But to help mark what is a special occasion, 150 years of the FA Cup and more now, we decided to speak to Richard Whitehead. He's produced an incredible book. It's called The Cup, a pictorial celebration of the world's greatest football tournament. And he joins us on the game right now. Hi, Richard. Morning, here. How are you? Very well. I've got the book in front of me. It, it, the front cover shows Jamie Vardy cuddling the FA Cup. It's a special moment. It's one of many special moments in this book. Why did you decide to do it? Well, uh, good question. I, I've known for... I've had it, the idea in my mind for years because I remember the centenary celebrations in, in 1972. I'm old enough to remember that. Mm. And so I knew this 150th was coming up and I, I really wanted the opportunity to write something about it. I wasn't quite sure what exactly form the book should take, but I had a conversation with uh, a great man of the time, sports desk, Matt Dickinson, who, uh, who sort of said, well, why don't you look towards doing something, you know, slightly glossy and celebratory and nostalgic. It was Paul Hayward called the book a a warm bath of nostalgia. So uh, that was really how the idea took shape. How have you executed this book? Because we, we, you know, it says a pictorial celebration. It isn't just that. You've written so many wonderful stories about so many different aspects of the FA Cup. Yeah, I wanted to tell the whole story, but I didn't want to do a chronological year by year, who won it that year etc etc account really there are there are other books for that and i'll apologize to anybody who buys it and then finds their favorite team or year isn't in it so the motivation really was telling some of the perhaps lesser known stories as well as the famous ones i didn't want to be so obscure that i didn't have 1953 or 1973 or 1923 in there you've got to have all the biggies as, as, as you might call them but I also wanted to tell some of the more obscure stories and I really wanted to uh, find photographs which are not perhaps in all the other books. There are, if you've got a shelf full of football books, you'll you'll know there's some pictures that crop up again and again. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to delve a bit deeper and find some really cracking different pictures that had great stories behind them. Richard, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of that balance of nostalgia and picking out the big moments but what struck me most going through the book was as you say those how much I learned basically about moments that I didn't even know had happened what what was your kind of favorite story I know there are so many to choose from but which in your research which was your favorite story that you found or discovered well I, I I'm a huge Beatles fan and always have been so uh, I was delighted to find that image of Paul McCartney outside of Wembley in 1968 I didn't, the Beatles, peculiarly for four lads from Liverpool, didn't seem to like football very much. So it was fantastic to find that image. My favourite picture, I've been asked this a lot, actually, uh, Tom, is uh, is the one of West Bromwich Albion about to come home with the cup in 1931. Uh, and uh, the photographer, they're at Paddington Station, there's a steam locomotive waiting to bring them home. 
and for the benefit of the photographer they clamber all over this steam locomotive which would have been very hot <laughs> hmm. and with the cup and there's the players there's the officials there are the wags they're, they're very happy they look incredibly smart in there they're suited and booted uh and i love the fact that you know here was a photo opportunity that, that you know health and safety didn't really come into it they just clambered up on top of this steam locomotive so that's my favorite image but uh it's a bit like asking you, you know, what, what's your favorite child? <laughs> it changes from day to day, really. There, there are so many wonderful ones in there. Absolutely. And, and you hinted at it there. What, what do you think was the most striking thing about the way the game has changed over the years? Because that was another thing I took away from the book. You know, you've mentioned it there with the West Brom pictures and climbing over a train. You know, you wouldn't have um, Jamie Vardy doing that these days, or maybe you would in Jamie Vardy's more partying moments. But what was the most striking thing for you about how the game has changed that you've found going through all these pictures? Gosh, uh, how long have you got? Uh, <laughs> there's a, you see the evolution of the game through the book, don't you? Although it does hop between eras, as, mm. as, you've, as you've said, you do see the evolution of it. I think that although we've had a couple of great upsets, you know, Wigan Athletic and uh, Portsmouth, there's a certain predictability about it, isn't there now, which guys which i i think is quite sad really you know we've lost that you know we've got two of the monoliths in the final again tomorrow and you know chelsea in their third successive final chelsea's record in the 21st century in the fa cup is absolutely extraordinary mm. although they are bidding to i think to avoid becoming the first team to win through to lose three consecutive finals tomorrow so i i think it's that it's that sort of Although we still get upset, it's that sort of the lack of the sheer randomness of it that we used to love in the 60s and 70s. The book is, is separated into sections that include romance and icons and fans and celebrities and even things as peculiar, if you like, as the journeys, the venues, um, the, the giant killers in the FA Cup, which, of course, we love as well. How did you decide how to dissect the book in that manner? Well, uh, I didn't want to be too strict about it. I mean, there's, the first chapter is called Romance. The second one's called Heroes. And, and I, I, I think, you know, as I was doing Heroes, I thought, well, this, this, this could just as easily have gone under Romance. So, I, you know, I didn't want to be too strict. I, I mean, other than obviously venues is a, is a very much defined thing, as is Giant Killer. So I just wanted really to... to capture the essence of it and some of the glory of it and and also some of the tragedy you'll have seen there are there are some very sad stories in there as well so some some chapter headings there were chapter headings that didn't make it in the end i wanted to do one about broadcasting for instance but in the end there just weren't enough pictures about broadcasting so that didn't quite make the cut so it was a sort of a, bo a boxing and coxing uh, sort of thing all the way through and just just gradually making sure that we had enough content to make a chapter each time. The celebrities chapter, for instance, is quite short. I think there are only five pictures in it, but they are such brilliant pictures that you couldn't not have them in there. Really. I mean, I've been leafing through the book. The pictures are outstanding. I mean, so many historical moments, so many fantastic stories. Richard Whitehead, thank you for joining us on the Game Podcast. The book is called The Cup, a pictorial celebration of the world's greatest football tournament, so make sure you check that out. 
So let's take a look ahead to the FA Cup final then. A huge game between Liverpool and Chelsea at Wembley. This is going to be the fourth meeting of the season between these two teams. Jurgen Klopp going head-to-head with Thomas Tuchel. The other three matches have all ended level at the end of the 90 minutes at least. Of course, Liverpool did lift the League Cup via penalties in February. So it could be a very, very close game. Let's talk about these two sides. I want to start by talking about Chelsea. If Chelsea lose, has the season been a failure that's despite them winning the super cup and the club world cup because so much was expected of them you're so clever in your words you use in your questions aren't you Hugh failure Mm, I'm not quite sure has it been disappointing that would have been a much easier one to answer don't fancy answering it again do you no 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 because because, no because it because it, it has already been disappointing yeah true even if they win the FA Cup it's been disappointing. I think so. That's why I said a failure. Yeah, I think from the point of where they were and what Tuchel achieved in such a short space of time, and how excited we were, and yeah, I can remember being on this podcast, maybe even the three of us, and talking about being a three-horse race for the title early in the season. Um, not even that early in the season, you know, after a few months, and having signed Romelu Lukaku, then yeah, I, I think you'd have to say failure is not a terrible word to use if they lose this final it it will be fascinating to be honest this is one of the FA Cup finals in recent years that I've been most excited by because I think there's there's a lot of kind of underlying tensions to it a little bit you've got the Chelsea situation as you say Hugh with this being the chance to win a statement trophy prove their standing kind of you know we can compete and for Liverpool they've got so much going on they're still fighting for a quadruple. This could be the second trophy they win at Wembley this season. And there's lots of players with points to prove, particularly in the Chelsea team. So I think I'm really excited about it. I think it could be a really good game. You didn't really answer the question though, did you? I, yeah. Yeah, I said, I said it'll be a failure for Chelsea this season from where they were. Yeah, but what you said from, from where they were. And f- yeah, context. Context no, no, is no, everything, no, man. No, no, no. What do you mean? From, no, I'm not talking about from where they were. We're talking about the magnitude of the club of Chelsea. We're talking about the fact that they came into the season as one of the favourites for the Premier League. That's it. Yeah, that's what I said. No, you said from where they were. Yeah, as, from, in, as in from that's, that's that start point of the season. Oh, okay. In, yeah. So I thought you meant when they were top of the league and no, they were no, winning no. loads of games to go from there to no. where they are now. No, okay, no, no. so I just mean from misread you. Hopefully we'll delete all of that uh, in the edit. Um, Johnny, what do you think? Would it be a failure if they lost? <laughs> well, I think there's already been a failure to move on or to move to that next level as a club. And I, I expect them to do so this year, but... You know, it's been well trodden about uh, Lukaku hasn't quite been that signing that that pushed them on. I thought they t- I thought they'd contend for the title. They haven't been able to. I'm not sure if winning the FA Cup would provide great evidence either way. Really, I think it would just be a nice thing in itself. So yeah, it's been a really weird season on and off the pitch. Clearly for for Chelsea, but I agree with Tom that it's a it's a brilliantly poised final and the games between these teams have been compelling they've been even I think in that way that you know that line about how fighters make styles that Chelsea are are that kind of opponent that are just a bit awkward for Liverpool they don't they don't kind of enjoy being in the ring with them they kind of nullify quite a few of the things Liverpool um, like to do I think losing Kovacic potentially was a huge blow though for Chelsea, if, if indeed he is out after that tackle by Dan James last night, because he's been that kind of unsung player this season. He's been more or less a, the, the player of the season, and, and he was brilliant against Liverpool uh, in in the two two games. So that'd be a big blow, but it's a it's a it's a really good final, isn't it? It's it's um, 
to top managers and two teams that have, have got a really good recent history between them. So, one question about the starting team for Chelsea, which I think will be uh, in the build-up to the game when the team news comes out, one of the big talking points. Romelu Lukaku, who was on the score sheet this midweek, should he start or should it be Kai Havertz, who does have a knack for a big goal in a big game in a Chelsea shirt? Lukaku has to start for me. I think Johnny talked about Liverpool not liking playing Chelsea and the kind of nullifying effects that sometimes Tuchel can have on uh, big opponents I'd really like to see Chelsea come and have a go I'd quite like to see him play maybe Lukaku and another forward in a kind of front two with maybe Mason Mount behind because I think when you go back to that Carabao Cup final Lukaku's had a very difficult season been one of the major talking points major disappointments but actually coming off the bench in that Carabao Cup final and playing as a front two with Timo Werner they actually caused Liverpool some problems you know, the faintest of offside margins on VAR and he could have won the final for them. So I'd really like to see that. Lukaku's obviously got goal against Leeds, you know, hopefully a boost to the confidence. I'd quite like to see Chelsea have a go, if you like, and come come out and surprise Liverpool and surprise us all um, and try and take the game to Liverpool. Because I think as much as Liverpool might be kind of tired and fatigued at the minute, um, they will take hold of the game and control it. And I think if Chelsea allow them to do that, then I don't think they'll be able to wrestle the momentum back. I'd go with Kai Havertz, personally, because I think the impact that Lukaku had off the bench signifies that towards the end of the game, he could really affect things. But also, I think with the high line, the thing that Liverpool found most difficult to cope with was the fact that they didn't really know where the main threat was. There were so many players who could run in behind from various angles. It it wasn't really the conventional style of defending. And I actually think Lukaku makes it more straightforward for the centre-backs. It was Mason Mount, you remember, in the first half of that game, who kept getting through, kept running from midfield and having all of those chances. And Werner, from the left, Left-hand side, I think, could have a real impact as well in that regard, particularly if Trent Alexander-Arnold switches off once or twice, mm. which he tends to. I, I think the element of surprise that having more more of that Manchester City front five, more of a midfielder, total football vibe, um, would bring to the, the FA Cup final would actually be more successful for Chelsea. Yeah, I, and I, I agree. I wouldn't play Lukaku as a central striker. I'd play him as a two up front, maybe with Timo Werner, and try and attack those kind of channel areas. And you say, maybe play uh, what Louis van Gaal used to call long passes, not long balls. (laughs) But from that kind of midfield area and get Lukaku, who has great pace, running in, you know, behind the shoulder of Virgil van Dijk and whether it's Matip or Canate. But I I think you're right. Tuchel will probably go for the other option, but I think it'd be exciting if he went for the two up top with Lukaku as one of them. I I, I kind of echo it. I think he will go with Havertz and I think the safe place to go with Havertz because that's the the, the formula that's won in the Champions league and it won him it's, it's, it's troubled Liverpool you know playing with that that kind of the false nine and the movement and and, and trying to um, you know get draw defenders into positions they don't want to be and maybe get Trent Alexander-Arnold out of position a little bit and, and Liverpool do have a slight weakness on the left with Shimakas if, if Robertson's not playing so I think that's what he will do but again I feel sorry for Lukaku because he was very good last night apart from his goal and if he doesn't play in a game like that this what's what's he really there for you know if, if as Tom said if, if, if he wants to go for it if Tuchel wants to go for it and try and impose himself he does play with Lukaku maybe Lukaku and Havertz but but but, but I don't think that's in Tuchel's nature I think he's more the uh, the strategist that tries to 
think what the other guy is going to do and then how can I how can I sort of disrupt that a little bit so I I suspect he'll go with that safe play and 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 play Havertz um and poor Lukaku will be left sitting on the bench again I think in terms of Chelsea's team, if Mateo Kovacic, and it was a big tackle from Dan James and it looked like it really rolled his ankle, he went off uh, very shortly afterwards. Um, if he's missing, that really does affect how Chelsea play on this because yeah. he, he almost sets the tempo for them. He's more industrious than Jorginho, I think. He has quality on the ball. He can just, you know, he has developed in the last couple of seasons to be more of the, the player that can run the midfield against, against the better sides in particular. It's not that Jorginho can't do it, but I think that would be a huge miss for them but I also think if Fabinho doesn't make the game in terms of that midfield area that's a massive miss for Liverpool as well his tenacity and winning the ball back I mean it seems so often that every single attack against Liverpool um, if you you get past Fabinho then it's Van Dijk but it's rare that you get past Fabinho so I think those could be two key misses in this game it might make it more open and more of a fun FA Cup final usually with the FA Cup final that's all I want a good game (laughs) don't really care who wins but I think it will be interesting to see who comes out on top in this one it's just interesting that they haven't even you know it's Liverpool they haven't beaten Chelsea yet so far this season that that for me is also a big one so so where do we think this game's going to be won and lost with the players who are out there this weekend I'm going for it being the Luis Diaz FA Cup final. Oh, yeah? Well, I just think, because think about some of the things that we've talked about in terms of some of those big players missing. I do think Liverpool, as brilliant as they have been, they're kind of grinding out wins, but grinding out wins isn't really Liverpool's style. I wonder whether there's a bit of either physical or mental fatigue there and you ha- you can't not be in Liverpool's position and be thinking about oh and we've got the Premier League game and oh what have Man City done and oh god we've got the Champions League final that's a hell of a lot but I think Luis Diaz is slowly looking like one of the buys of the season and I think it could be this kind of a game where as you say Hugh we're going to see some interesting uh, lineups potentially with some big names missing and it'll be on these kind of players not they're not squad players are they they're kind of your extra your 12th your 13th your 14th players but I could see Diaz having a big impact and swinging it for Liverpool yeah I see Liverpool winning it um, I think Diaz will be important and and Chelsea are not quite what they were at the back certainly with, with Thiago Silva not been around um, and uh, well I guess he might he might come back in he was rested last night but um, with Manny in the form that he's in as well. Um, I think Salah's probably got something to prove. But I I kind of wonder and maybe slightly hope that it will be the Thiago FA Cup final because his form's been incredible. And if ever there was a, a, a stage fit for him, it's it's Wembley. I could see him, with, if Kovacic isn't there, um, I could see him really dominating, the dictating from, from midfield. Um, I just do think Liverpool have got too much and that's why they'll win it. And and I think the realisation that they're not going to win the league gives them that little extra spur to to try and win this one too. But I do think it'll be a I do think it'll be a terrific game. I, I, I sniff a shock in this. Really? Yeah. I, I I do. I think I you're think, e- you're ending with a final bold prediction as well. So you, this is your fourth. <laughs> do, you, do you know the last two games, I don't think Liverpool have been that good. I know that sounds weird. It was a draw against Tottenham where I think Tottenham deserved to win the game. Clearly, they're a pretty good side. 
But even against Aston Villa, and I know it wasn't their first choice team and they rested some people for the weekend, didn't really click until those players came on. Now, obviously, they'll all start the weekend, but it's Aston Villa. I still don't think it was, um, you know, given the level of competition that they had in that game, a great performance from them. I just haven't seen them really be at their fluent best. It's not a great time to have two performances like that ahead of the game against Chelsea. Now, we know Chelsea haven't been brilliant this season, but I think these games, they, they do show up for. They usually do show up for. So who's your Chelsea star? then I've gone Diaz Johnny's well, gone Thiago well, this, for me this is key where Reese James plays so I think if he's right wing back you lose something going forward particularly delivery into the box so if Lukaku starts Reese James has to be right wing back for me because mm. you, you, so you don't want him right of a back three I, I think in terms of the result, he needs to start right of the back three. Right. So he is the person that needs to keep an eye largely on Luis Diaz. And Marnie and Salah. No, I mean, like, <laughs> he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it all on his own. I'm just thinking about the left-hand side there. Yeah. I don't think you can put Azpilicueta because once Reese James get, gets forward, in behind, it's going to be Luis Diaz, of course, right? So Luis Diaz is going to be in behind. He's going to be running at Azpilicueta and it could end up being the Luis Diaz final. I think you do need to try and avoid that. Reese James has been brilliant lately. He needs to be the person that Luis Diaz is running at when he gets space, basically. So I think it does rely on that for me. But I think if he does start there... Maybe you play Azpilicueta as the right wing back um, and you maybe don't have as much of an attack down that that right hand side, but you're in the game and you keep it tight and then Lukaku can come on later on. Maybe you can change things. Get it in the box. Get it in the mixer. (laughs) Lukaku header, 93rd minute and Chelsea win the FA Cup final 2-1. Right. That's my bold prediction. Great. Number four or Number five? Four. Number four. Okay. <laughs> all right. So we'll we'll, we'll we'll review them all um, when we get the opportunity to. They won't all be at the weekend. Um, but we're going to Liverpool's one Chelsea. Listen, thank you for joining us on the game podcast this week. Jonathan Northcroft and Tom Clark, been a pleasure to be with you as always. We'll be reacting to everything that we see this weekend. There's North London Derby to come tonight as well. Uh, remember, if you're enjoying any of our journalism from the Times or the Sunday Times, you can subscribe right now. Check it out. If you sign up, you'll get yourself one month free. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game or just go to your app provider, download the Times app, hit sport, and we will be there with more of that journalism, like I say, covering all the big events in the world of football and beyond. Uh, Thank you for listening once again. We will see you very soon. 